Coming up, we hunt Nazi treasure with Second World War historian James Holland and producer Steve Gamester. The Second World War is sort of an endless uh, treasure trove of stories. The whole USP of, of the German way of war is to fight their wars incredibly quickly and win incredibly quickly. And when it doesn't happen, when, when the war drags out, um, you've got a problem on your hands. So the Germans were always very into kind of plundering from, from other countries and taking what they could. And I'd heard the stories about how the Nazis eluded art and started to look into it a little bit more and really discovered um, what many people before me had already known, that, you know, the Nazi thieving during the Second World War was the biggest heist in history. Uh, looting is always a part of war, but the Nazis took it to another level. I mean, it, it is symptomatic of, um, of a state that has just completely lost its way. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I'm Richard Krauss. Come on in, shut the door behind you, have a seat at the bar, pour yourself a Negroni, and sit back and listen to the conversation as it flies through the air. Today we talk with the producer and one of the stars of a new television show called Hunting Nazi Treasure. This is pretty fascinating stuff. It's an investigative series that takes viewers on a search to locate valuable objects and artwork missing since the Second World War, and then they return it to their rightful owners. There's 13 countries, over four continents, and it really gets an inside, deep down look at the Nazi looting of cultural objects and gold during the Second World War. You can see it on the History Channel in Canada. It airs on Tuesday nights at 10 o'clock. I really enjoyed speaking with Steve Gamester. He is one of the producers of the show. And Second World War historian James Holland, one of the presenters. You may know him as a writer and broadcaster. He's the author of a bunch of books like Fortress Malta, Battle of Britain, Dam Busters. He really knows his stuff. i got to tell you, though, we started off the interview with a bit of a disagreement. I loved Dunkirk. I thought Dunkirk was a great example of pure cinema. It drew me in and kept me there on the beach, in the air, on the sea for the entire running time. He didn't agree with me so much. Here's James Holland and Steve Gamester. Just before we turned the microphones on, we were talking about Dunkirk. I loved Dunkirk, top to bottom, as an experience in pure cinema. Um, I thought that it it really gave me a feeling of what it might have been like to either be on the land, in the sea, or, you know, uh, a part of that. I'm talking to a Second World War historian who disagrees a little bit. You liked Dunkirk, but the history is not right. Yeah, I saw it in the IMAX in, in London. Oh, and, see it um, as large and loud as you can. That's yeah. crucial to the enjoyment of this. Yes, and I mean, you know, I'm sure just like everyone who watched it, when the first rifle shot cracks and the kind of opening scene, yeah. you know, I jolted in my seat. I mean, I thought visually it was fantastic. I thought the aerial shots, I mean, I just love looking at Spitfires. So I was very happy about that. But historically... Huge amount of problems. I mean, Spitfires don't fly at zero feet. The whole point is to have the advantage of height, so you'd be flying over there at kind of 20,000, 30,000 feet and diving down. Um, you know, there was no mention of the defence of the perimeter, which is one of the reasons why the evacuation lasted a week rather than just a, a handful of hours mm -hmm. or, you know, 36 hours, which is what the original expectation was. Um, you know, it wasn't all about the little ships. Um, it was m about much larger ships, which is why 338,000 men got across. But if you watch that movie, you think, 
think you're left with the impression that it was the little ships that kind of ferried, came to the rescue in Britain's hour of need. And it just made Britain look kind of weak and feeble, which I don't really like. Oh, see, no, I, I thought the exact opposite Okay, of well, that. I'm really glad to hear that. And, and see, what I thought this movie was actually really about, because I'm not a Second World War historian, what I thought when I watched it is that this movie was about community. It's about putting aside the age of the individual, which I think we kind of live in now, uh, you know, whatever news I watch is the right news, and my opinion, you know, matters as fact and all that. Putting all that aside, pushing that aside, and coming together as a community and saying, yeah, I'm going to take my little ship, my little boat, my canoe, and go across that 26 miles of the English Channel and and help people in their time of need. I thought I was uplifted oh, by the message that it that it presented. Great. I mean, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that. But, but you know, at the time, Britain had the world's largest navy, world's largest merchant fleet, yeah. and stacked along the mole literally 24-7 until the 1st of June, which is when the le- weather broke and actually good weather made daylight operations impossible from the mole. Up until that point, you had double-stacked ships there all the time just shuttling people back and forth. So the whole thing about tides affecting, kind of lifting people from the mole was just absolute nonsense and it was because of Christopher Nolan's kind of reluctance to use CGI obviously there aren't that many World War II ships that you can use so the alternative is to use little ships which is you know I don't have a problem with focusing on Mark Rylance and his ship I just have the problem of kind of implying that it was all down to them that this huge number of men were lifted from the from the uh, fr- fr- from the beaches uh, and the other problem of course is that you know Spitfires operated in squadrons and uh, 12 not 3 um, they operated at height they operated above the clouds which is why people couldn't really you see them um it's very unlikely that you would have landed on a beach with your undercarriage down because it might have dug in and you'd have pitched forward and actually it might have been even more dramatic to have had the spitfire kind of landing in on his belly uh, and you certainly wouldn't be shooting down a, um, a stuka by gliding but uh, you know hey is it, visually possi- it look great is it possible for you to enjoy uh, a second world war movie well do you know what yes uh, <laughs> and and the two most accurate second world war movies i've ever seen is the cruel sea which was made in the 1950s using people who'd actually fought in the second world war and a real world war ii corvette which you know you canadians would have known about because the canadians proportionally had more corvettes mm-hmm. than any other navy in the world uh, and boy did they go through the mill and the second one is the thin red line which was terrence malick's film okay. which i thought was utterly brilliant and completely wonderful and as a depiction of the kind of language the interplay between characters the kind of sense of what the action was like on Guadalcanal the um, the atmosphere it I, you just couldn't fault it in any way whatsoever so it brings the history alive uh, for me yes and this is my segue into your show <laughs> so uh, Steve let's talk about uh, hunting Nazi treasure. You're the producer of the show. Um, where does the idea come from, and 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 how do you start a project like this? Because people have are constantly looking for these looted treasures. Uh, where did the idea come from for the show? Well, the, I mean, it's one of those stories that's been around for a long time, one of those great sort of forgotten, hidden stories of the mm-hmm. Second World War. But there's a lot of those, as we know. I mean, uh, the Second World War is sort of an endless uh, treasure trove of stories, no pun intended. But this particular idea came about two years ago when I was reading the newspaper. Uh, may have even been an original paper newspaper. I mean, I am a history guy. <laughs> and I saw a story about these two treasure hunters in Poland who said that they had found evidence of an entire train, an entire World War II train that was buried underneath a mountain in southern Poland, and they said it was full of Nazi treasure. 
I remember just being amazed by that. One, that there could be an entire train hidden in a mountain full mm -hmm. of gold. And two, that there were people, these ordinary guys out there, treasure hunters, looking for this stuff from over 70 years ago. And I'd heard the stories about how the Nazis eluded art and started to look into it a little bit more and really discovered um, what many people before me had already known, that, you know, the Nazi thieving during the Second World War was the biggest heist in history. Uh, looting is always a part of war, but the Nazis took it to another level. Tell me then a little bit about the, the looting, the, the history of the looting. Well, it's just amazing. I mean, what, what you have to understand is that Germany sits in the middle of, of, um, of Europe. Uh, its access to the world's oceans are very limited. Its access to resources are very limited. It's a resource-poor country on its own. So actually, the whole USP of, of the German way of war is to fight their wars incredibly quickly and win incredibly quickly. And when it doesn't happen, when, when the war drags out... Um, you've got a problem on your hands. So the Germans were always very into kind of plundering from, from other countries and taking what they could. Um, what I hadn't appreciated was just how personal this was as well. So on one level, there's a practical reason. Take all the coal, take mm -hmm. all, the, all the machinery, um, take all the gold reserves of the countries you occupy and, and conquer. But there is this whole other level, which is about personal greed, you know, art, things that you just you just happen to want. I mean, you know, Hitler wants to... He fancies himself as a kind of architectural guru, um, fancies himself as a great art collector. His legacy to the German people is going to be the Führer Museum, which he's going to build in Linz. And so it, he it starts... It's going to take like 15 years to build or something, isn't yes, it? It's and, like and this incredibly elaborate building that never got built. But Right. So, so, so the whole... The whole background to this is sort of built into the kind of Nazi psyche is this whole idea that you, you're going to have to take stuff. But it's this, this two-tier two of it, of, of this fevery. There is the practical fevery because we need it because otherwise we don't have yeah. enough. And there is this second bit which is all about the ego, about just kind of wanting it because you want it. And the level of it is just unbelievable. And the, and the the level to which they pour their own meager resources into doing this fevery is just truly astonishing. Well, Goebbels had so many paintings in his giant home, and this is the, the focus of one of the episodes of the a television. Goering, 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 Goering. Yeah. Uh, had so many paintings. That, wasn't he just stacking them up against the wall? At, at a certain point, there were so many totally. that he ran yeah, Hanging out them of from the ceiling. Space. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, that, that's, a, that's a place called Karen Hall, which was Goering's mm -hmm. hunting retreat, which is um, a town in sort of northeast Germany. Um, the name of the town escapes me, but ironically, it's the town that Angela Merkel's from. <laughs> Um, the remains of this place, Karenal, his hunting lodge, um, is a place that we visit during the series. And, and, you know, Goering considered himself a Renaissance man. I mean, he was an incredibly intelligent guy, an enormously high IQ, very, very, very smart. Um, He's one about the most Machiavellian people you could have. This is a guy who had his own security service and, and uh, throughout the entire war called the Forschungsamt. And this was a listening service. And this was not to get one over his enemies in Britain and Canada and America and what in the Soviet Union. This is to keep one step ahead of other Nazis. Right. And this is just how rotten the whole thing is. I mean, what you have to understand is that the Nazi regime, the foundations on which it's built, are incredibly fragile. And they are continually wasting vast amount of resources that they don't frankly have on their own personal greed. And there's all kinds of crazy stories about Goering. For instance, you know, one of the one of the things that we uncover in the series are these albums, these gigantic photographic albums that belong to the ERR, which is a 
acronym for a, a, for German that I won't butcher on the air. <laughs> but but essentially, this was the organization that went around to loot art across Europe on behalf of the Nazis, and they prepared these massive photo albums of the greatest works of art from Europe, stolen from everywhere, from museums, from wealthy families, from art dealers, and they were presented to Hitler and to Goering to to look at. And you know, there are stories about how Goering, especially towards the end of the war, when you know during the Battle of Stalingrad, when things start to turn against the Germans, you know, he would sort of retreat into looking at these albums, you know, sort of escape from, from the reality. So we, we see in, in a lot of the Nazi leaders, especially as the war goes on, you know, at the beginning, there's sort of greed to amass all this stuff. It gradually comes their escape from, from, from what they've seen. And even at Nuremberg itself, you know, when Goering was confronted with the charges against him, you know, the sort of reading off, you've, you've done this, you know, you're, you're guilty of genocide and war crimes. He's just sort of smirking at all of these things. But when they tell him he's an art thief, he actually got quite upset. You know, he really did consider himself quite, quite a collector, quite a Renaissance man. And you go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that whole story about Goering in 1940 in the Haussticker Gallery in, in Amsterdam. So before the war, before they've gone into the Low Countries, before they've gone into France, Goering is thinking, ah, OK, opportunities here. And hang on to that thought, yes. and we'll pick the story up on the other side of the commercial break. Okay, so we were talking about, about Goering and the Haussticker Gallery. So, so what is amazing, and, and you see this repeatedly, is that when they really need to, you know, someone like Goering, he is commander-in-chief of the Luftwaffe. He's got quite a job on his hands. He's got to try and destroy the, the, the British retreat from Dunkirk, for example. Um, then he's got the Battle of Britain to kind of contend with. But no, his absolute number one top priority is half-inching a whole load of and stealing a whole load of, uh, uh, of, of, of art, which he has already earmarked for his own personal collection before the, the actual war has begun, the yeah. battle in the Low Countries in France has begun. So he's got his scouts out there, and he knows that in Amsterdam there is a Haussticker Gallery, and the Haussticker Gallery is one of the kind of finest art galleries in the whole of the Netherlands, and he wants to get his hands on it before Hitler can get his hands on it, because he knows that Hitler also likes this. But the problem is he can't steal from Hitler. He's got to give Hitler first... first um, first dibs. So how does he get around this problem? So what he does is he finds this um, rather shadowy German businessman who's relocated to the Netherlands in the early 1930s called, called Alois um, Meidel. And Meidel, um, he gets Meidel to go in there and buy in inverted commas, at rock-bottom price, the whole of the Haussticker gallery, because Haussticker is a Jew and has fled when the Germans have invaded on the 10th of May 1940. So Meidel goes in there, buys all this stuff, which Goering then buys, in inverted commas yeah. again, off Meidel, takes the pick that he wants, the kind of top 600 that he particularly wants for his own collection. And that way, Hitler can't confiscate it because it's actually already in private hands and owned by a German. So this is how Goering can get one step ahead of the Führer and get the pictures that he wants. And they're all the same kind of stuff. It's all Kranichs and kind of Rubens and all this kind of stuff, this kind of sort of particular type of art, which is massively out of fashion in the early part of the 20th century and the middle part of the 20th century, but which is still beloved by the Führer mm -hmm. and Goering and all these kind of high Nazis. It's just extraordinary. And you say 600 paintings, which is just a drop in the bucket to how many yes, were taken. because Haustiger tragically, as he's crossing over to England, trips down a stairwell, breaks his neck and dies. But on his body is this little black book, which has a list of his entire collection. That is recovered 
cupboard. It is now in one of the uh, main archives in the city. And we got to look at this thing. And, you, you know, you open up this little black book and there it's kind of Rubens, 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 Cranach, 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 you know, Rembrandt. I mean, it's just, a, it's just a list of some of the finest painters known to man. And in this collection, in today's prices, you're talking about not tens of millions, you're talking about billions of dollars worth of... Uh, of, of valuable, and that's one. That's just, one collection. I mean, there's, you know, there's estimated yeah. hundred thousand. I mean, everyone's got a different number in the story. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's the, well because so much of so this huge. was so shadowy that it's probably hard to. I mean, the Germans. Yes, and that's, did, the, and that's just the, the Goering one is just one example. Yeah. So if I if I may, Richard, just let me give this other example. So so what the Nazis decided is that degenerate art in inverted commas yeah, yeah. again um, is Van Gogh, some, Monet. Yeah. So any modern art is kind of is is not to be outlawed. You know, yeah. it's outlawed in, in Germany. You're not allowed to show it. it. It's considered worthless, except they all, the Nazis know it isn't worthless. Right. They know there is still a market out there. So they allocate some art dealers to deal in this degenerate art. They then sell it to Switzerland, where else, America, whoever. And then the money then goes back into the Nazi coffers. But what is happening is some of these dealers, people like uh, um, Hildebrand Gerlitt, for example, he is stealing it from Jewish collectors and then what he notes that he's taken. So say he takes 12 paintings. He then makes a note of those 12 paintings, but then he only, and then he only notifies the, um, the Nazis back in Berlin right. of, say, nine, and he's siphoning off three of them. So actually, he's not only stealing from the Jews, he's also effectively stealing from Hitler as well. You know, he's playing a very, very <laughs> dangerous game. So the story is so massive. Coming in and creating a television show like this, where do you begin? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, you know, it's it, you always wish you had more time. I mean, for this for this project, we we traveled to four continents and shot in thirteen countries, so it is a massive story. And I think you know you have to begin knowing that you're never going to tell it all. Right. But you know, we knew that we wanted to tell stories about some of the key figures. Um, you know, Hitler was famously a failed artist himself. Um, you know, was sort of the center of all of this. We knew that Goering was a big art leader, but we also wanted to tell some stories that would go to specific countries. Um, you know, one of the more interesting ones that uh, James and I both really liked is, you know, we wanted to go to North Africa because, of course, we know that the Nazis did invade North Africa. And one of the most fascinating stories was something called the Legend of Rommel's Gold. Now, Rommel was a famous German general, perhaps the most capable, uh, although I'm sure James might, might debate me on that one, but, <laughs> but he's, he's known as sort of one of the more famous and capable um, German generals. And, you know, the legend has his name on it, but really it has absolutely nothing to do with him. It's, it's more to do with this kind of shadowy, second-tier SS killer who's sent to North Africa and decides he's going to um, go after this ancient Jewish community on the island of Jerba and demand 50 kilos of gold be brought to him in 24 hours. So, you know, you, you look for the stories that you can tell. You look yeah. for the stories that are linked to big characters or interesting stories. We told a story about the most valuable work of art looted by the Nazis still missing today, which is a Raphael painting that if it was found would be on the front cover of every newspaper in the world. It's worth at least $100 million, perhaps $200 million. And that's that's one painting. And and where is that painting likely? Is it in a deep, dark cave somewhere owned by someone who knows you know what, what it is and refuses? Or was it destroyed? Or No, it's not destroyed. I, I do not believe it. I mean, it's it's so valuable. Someone in the world 
has that painting and knows they've got it. I'm yeah. absolutely certain of it. And we got tantalizingly close on the trail. We we charted its movement from Poland into Austria, then into um, southern Germany. We tracked down um, uh, what seems to be a very genuine sighting of it in a cellar in southern Bavaria in the early 1970s. And um, there's absolutely no reason to doubt that the, the veracity of that sighting. Then the kind of the trail goes cold, but someone out there's got it. Huge undertaking, four continents, how many countries? 13 countries. 13 countries. Yeah. Um, what was, you know, from your estimation anyway, the, the biggest deal? Like if, if, if people are, if we're teasing people now, what's the, the biggest story? From all those travels. Well, I think one of the more interesting things is that, you know, um, really discovering that this treasure is everywhere. And gold is an interesting example. I mean, you know, gold is kind of the lifeblood of the Nazi state. In order to conduct the war, they needed gold in order to buy the raw materials to build their war machine. Mm -hmm. So for me, one of the most intriguing stories was trying to follow that trail. Where did all this gold come from and where did it go? And one of the most chilling discoveries in researching this series is that a lot of that gold came from Auschwitz. And the part of Auschwitz where that gold came from was named after, it was named Canada. So this very yeah. chilling connection to our own country that I had no idea about. Um, you know, at the beginning of the war, when the Nazis needed gold, what they would do is they would roll up to the central bank of Poland or, or Czechoslovakia or France or Holland or wherever they'd taken over the country and just take it. But as the war turned and those opportunities diminished, they would look for gold in other places. And one of the most macabre examples is that they turned the concentration camps into horrible gold mines where they would remove the valuable jewelry and even gold teeth of victims. Mm. And the reason that the part of Auschwitz was called Canada is the Nazi guards considered Canada a land of plenty. So that was a particularly chilling and I think poignant um, discovery. In and in the show, series. when you hear them talk about it, it just the idea with the word Canada comes up. It sort of gave me a little. It's jolting. Jolt. Yeah. yeah. No, you don't. You don't expect it, and and it is um, quite shocking. And you know, the if you watch Schindler's List, you know, as a film mm -hmm. guy, I know you'll appreciate. There is a great scene in that film where they show inmates <laughs> in the camp who are rifling through the left luggage mm -hmm. and, yeah, and yeah. the clothing of the inmates that come in, and and and, and those are um, mostly Jewish uh, inmates who've who've been spared from the gas chambers to work as part of this unit. Well, spared doesn't seem like the right word, but um, they're not sent to the gas chambers and are part of this work. And we were, were lucky to find one, to survive. There's only, when we started the research, there were only three women in the world that we could identify who were part of this Canada commando. And one of them was a woman, woman named Irene Weiss, who moved to the States after the war. And uh, she tells the story of how when she arrived in Auschwitz, she's immediately separated from her family um, and they're never seen again. But she goes to work at this strange place called Canada mm -hmm. to, to remove all these valuables, which, of course, were then sent back to Germany. The gold was melted down to gold bars to build more tanks and to continue the war, which, of course, prolongs the Holocaust. So it's, you know, th that's the thing about this treasure story is I think it, it's a different window into the Second World War and and. and the motivations of the Nazis and how the Nazi state worked. Um, oh, so it's a reminder, isn't it, Steve, that, that you know, of, of 
the depravity and just how insane the whole thing is. I mean, what a lot of people probably don't appreciate when they are visiting Auschwitz is that they also have this incredible archive there. And one of the and in that archive, some of the papers they've got that were captured at the end of the war, and they're little dockets, and they're kind of I don't know, about six inches wide by about kind of you know three or four inches deep uh, um, um, depth. And on every single one is a name, every single one is a date, and then you start looking at it a bit more closely. And what you realise is that what they're doing is they are, and it's a dental record. Yeah. And it's and it's upper right three and it, seven. And we see some of this in the in the. Oh my show. god! I mean, honestly, Richard, this is just spectacularly chilling. I mean, you, it's also completely pointless. I mean, yeah. you know, but but what you're looking at is a name of a person, the day he's died, and the. The, the number of teeth and what part of the mouth they have come from. It is absolutely grotesque. The documentation, I mentioned this earlier, so the Nazis were famous for documenting everything, but in the art world, it got a little murkier because I guess, well, they were stealing everything anyway. So why, why is it so murky in the art world, the, yeah, the it, lack of documentation? Yeah, because they just the, okay. So what happens? Well, there is documentation. I mean, you know, um, Gullet is is documenting what he's taking of degenerate art, right. for example. And again, I kind of use inverted commas yeah. um, and making a record of it. It's just he's then doctoring those records um, for his own end. Right. So at the end of the war, you end up with you know him with this huge collection of art that he has also siphoned off and stolen. Um, but to a certain point, a certain extent, you know, if 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 the Nazis want the lady with the ermine, you know, by Leonardo da Vinci, mm -hmm. they go to the museum and they just the art gallery and they just take it. And you know, but it is interesting, you know. I mean, one of the one of the stories uh, that we follow is a tapestry, you know, a Dutch, a 15th yeah. century Dutch tapestry, which actually hung on the wall of Hitler's dining room at his, um, his sort of residence uh, near, uh, well, the, the Wolf's Lair, which was a separate house above uh, Berchtesgaden. And you know, tracking down the documentation from that was fascinating because. That tapestry was purchased on Hitler's behalf. So there was money exchange, and we tracked down the original bill of sale. It came from a Jewish family in Munich. This is 1938, so before the war erupts, but well after the Nuremberg laws are passed, which are the laws that you know strip Jews in Germany of all kinds of rights and all kinds of different things, including you know the ability to own businesses and so on and so forth. So there's this effort by the Nazis to, um, to legitimize the theft, mm -hmm. you know, to codify it in, in law. And you see this in all kinds of ways across the Nazi state, and you see it in the way they steal things. So yes, Hitler's agent pays for this tapestry, but did he pay a fair price? And what kind of coercion is going on? In fact, the sale tracks back, I believe, to November 1938, which is right around the time of Kristallnacht, which is the famous night of the broken glass when, you know, all across Germany, the Nazis are attacking Jewish businesses. So if you're a Jewish art dealer who has these things and a representative Hitler walks into your shop, I mean, what are you going to do? You're, you're, you know, you're going you're gonna to sell this thing. You're going to give it away. So there is this, you know, for us, it was a wonderful thing in terms of retelling the story because it was very important for us to, whenever possible, find the original documents and to tell the story as a treasure hunt, as an investigation through these documents. But it's not all rifling through papers and uh, doing uh, sort of what you might consider sort of the dry academic work of this. Uh, there's a lot of uh, boots on the ground work done here. And you're kind of fearless when you're out there. Is it just the excitement of being there that drives you? 
Yeah, I mean, as a historian, I've always been kind of very sort of wary of becoming an armchair historian. I do think it's incredibly important to walk the ground and see the sites and, you know, look at things 3D and go through little tiny holes in the ground. Yeah, Yeah. and do all that as well. But I mean, you know, I mean, Connor, my kind of the guy who was one of the presenters, I mean, he was he was the guy who was sort of jumping into lakes and things. But but but, you know, walking the ground and going and seeing places is really important. And I do remember going around this incredible, you know, amazing country house in Poland um, and it had been kind of half restored and half not, and it was a really deeply eerie and creepy place. And I kept thinking, what's wrong with this place? What, what is, what's, what's the problem with it? And then I suddenly clicked that, you know, back in the UK, the, there are any number of country mm. houses which are now owned by the National Trust or whatever it might be, and you go there and you pay your, your £10 to go and look around. And the whole place is it's not just the house, it's, it's the content. You're, you've got this kind of eye or, on, right. on a kind of former life from the 18th century or 19th century or something. And it's because it's stuff full of furniture and paintings and art and, and and objects. The thing about this house in Poland was there was nothing there. It was just an empty shell because, of course, everything had been stripped out, first by the Nazis and then subsequently by, by the Soviets. But, but it was just amazing. You just realise how... You know, the Nazis had just been through these places like Locus and just cleared everything out. And then you go to Paris and there were some 54,000 apartments and homes owned by Jews, which were, again, just completely cleaned out. And I had never appreciated just the scale of this thievery. You know, I knew they were kind of taking, you know, art. I knew they were taking, (coughs) you know, important resources and things. I hadn't realised they were kind of, you know, clearing out whole apartments. And we're not talking about just taking the kind of, you know, the the tables and chairs and beds. Everything. Fixtures and fittings, curtains, curtain poles, lights, light bulbs. You know, the whole lot was cleaned out. And was that, we just have 30 seconds, but was that in not only just thievery, but also a way of dehumanising people saying, we are literally erasing, we're taking it all. Yeah, I think that's... nothing, no footprint left behind. Yes. Yeah. In a word, it's yes. Both. Uh, you, producer, helped create the show. We're on the road with it the, the whole way along. I wish the whole way. I didn't get to go on every shoot, but uh, certainly some of the more fascinating ones. Uh, Russia, for instance, is yeah. one of the places that we went. Uh, I'm telling a story there. Um, you know, the, of course, the war in the East is, is a story that we don't get as much mm-hmm. in Canada. But eight out of every 10 German soldiers who died in the Second World War f- died fighting the Soviets. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of things that were stolen from, from the Soviet Union, Russia today. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a big adventure. Part of, I think, that what's interesting about certainly working on this series but watching it is you just you, the, the vistas, the places you go are, are mm-hmm. fantastic. The Catherine Palace in Russia, you know, the, the, uh, the Wolf's Lair in, in, uh, in Bavaria, um, Tunisia. Uh, we even made it to Chile in one of the episodes to track one of our stories. So, James, this sort of dovetails in what I mentioned earlier about how, for you, history seems to be a living, breathing thing. You're there. You're on the site. You're going to the places where it happened. Tell me what it is about it that has driven you to make this your life's work. Well, I think for, for all the major competent nations, um, and obviously Canada is included in that, um, you know, the Second World War is just the the, the biggest catastrophe, the biggest biggest conflict the world has ever known. And it affected every man, woman and child of those competent nations in a way that no other conflict ever has. So what drew me in the first place was very much the kind of human experience of war. And, you know, as a younger guy, I was sort of thinking, you know, well, what would I have done had I been kind of 20 and, and you know, suddenly caught up in this incredible maelstrom? You know, would I have joined the RAF? Would I have joined the Navy, the Army? Would I have somehow kind of, you know, got a cushy job? Or would I have found myself in the firing line? If I had found myself in the firing line, how would I have dealt with that? How would I have mm-hmm. cut with 
fear? How would I cope with being away for, for up to years on end? And, you know, I think about myself as a 20-year-old and I sort of think what a kind of sort of feckless, useless individual I was. <laughs> you know, we all were that age, you know, and, and yet, you know, I could have been commanding a squadron at 21. Yeah. You know, Prince Philip, for example, Duke of Edinburgh, you know, he was the youngest first lieutenant in the Royal Navy, age 21. I mean, it just seems unbelievable. Um, but then the more you get into it, the kind of it's the whys and wherefores which mm-hmm. are kind of start to draw you in. And that human experience of war is then supplemented by you know, proper archival research and and just loads and loads of unanswered questions. You know, why was it like this? How was it like this? And one of the things that, you know, my big thesis on on World War II is that that really, you know, war is, you know, for the narrative of the Second World War for the last kind of 40, 50 years has focused on the coalface of war, which we would call the tactical level, you know, the, the actual kind of attritional bit, you know, being in a tank or up in a Spitfire or whatever it might be or out at sea. Um, and the strategic level, which is, of course, you know, your generals, your, your, your Roosevelts and Churchills and so on. Um, the bit that started to really fascinate me has been what we would call the operational level. This is the nuts and bolts. It's actually the bit that glues the strategic high-end level right. to the tactical, the coalface of war. And, and that operational level is is not just economics and logistics. It's actually a whole more raft of, of human drama as well. And, and once you start reinserting that into the narrative, which was always there at the time and, and immediately afterwards as well, a very different picture um, emerges one where resources, supply of war, all that kind of stuff is really fascinating. What drew me to this story in the first place is, first of all, the kind of those hidden histories, those hidden stories of the mm-hmm. war, which I just didn't know about. I mean, I knew nothing, for example, about this clearing out of, of you know, Jewish properties in Paris, which is just just unbelievable. Um, but it is that supply of war, those resources, and, and it's just, again, you realise that, that that foundation of the Nazi state is so completely shaky, and you realise about how they're mismanaging their meagre resources. I mean, what you have to understand is that Germany is very resource poor in World War Two. Uh, one of the reasons why they're having to go and get all this gold, but there is also a huge amount of resources which are being used up extracting furniture from properties in Paris and shipping it back to Germany, or just the huge effort involved in stealing art, for example. You know, this this is not a small-scale thing. This is theft on a massive industrial scale. And a large part of it is completely useless and a waste of their meagre resources and time and effort. And it just undermines, I think, just how completely awry their whole thinking was and, and how kind of bad it was and how rotten at its utter core. I mean, if, if you've ever in doubt about just how awful the Nazis were and how, how just completely misguided they were, look at that docket with the number of teeth being extracted. Yeah. I mean, it, it just to me, it was just... Wow, you know, the, the, this is this they really, really are utterly low. I mean, you know, just everything about how awful the Nazis were is just encapsulated in that one piece of paper. Just utterly misguided, utterly mismanaged. They deserve to fail in a massive way, and thank God they did. It's Caring House, right? The, that Caring Hall, which is just 
nothing. named after Goering's first wife who died, who was a Swedish aristocrat who died. Uh-huh. And it's but it's, it's it's leveled now so that it doesn't become a shrine, right? Is no, that, he, yeah. he ordered it to be leveled himself. Oh, it's not called. Oh, no, but someone yeah. in the show says we don't want people really knowing where it is, so it doesn't yeah, become a neo-Nazi. I mean, there's shrine. no sign when you're driving through that part of Germany. You know, yeah. oh, if you want to, you yeah. know, stop by this interesting uh, site of Goering's former country house. It's not like that. Yeah. You have to know where it is, and part of that reason is they don't want it to become a you know, a uh, place for neo-Nazis today to, to gather. And if you do, I mean, we were able to get into to the, the former bunker underneath that complex, which is really all that's left. Yeah. And it's quite chilling because if you walk around in there, there are swastikas uh, spray painted yeah. on the walls. So, you know, I mean, it's 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 eerie. Uh, you know, two months ago on the front pages of newspapers, there were, you know, Nazis in Charlottesville. It's it's just, you know, t- so when you when you get into the history and, and as James says, you, you recognize the depravity and the evil and then you see people um, sort of glom on to that identity today. It's just it's shocking. I think, you know, what you've got to understand about the Nazis is they're living in this kind of sort of fantasy world. They've created this fantasy world. Hitler has started to believe his own myth. You know, everyone's surrounding him. Him, telling him you're marvelous, my fear, and all this kind right. of stuff, and and he starts to believe all that. Attached to all this is this kind of sort of completely wonky kind of Arnon Urban stuff about kind of you know the Aryan origins and all the rest of it. You know they're creating this kind of backstory because any nationalist has to have a kind of myth that which kind of perpetuates the whole supremacy of that they're trying to push forward. Uh, and and all those leading Nazis are just living in La La Land. I mean they're living in this kind of make believe world. Which, unfortunately, for, for, for Germany and for the rest of the world, has happened to have kind of taken hold and has some kind of traction, albeit only for 12 years. Yeah. And in that time, it's kind of all the rules are changing. All Everything that it was, was kind of sound and good about life is being kicked into touch. Uh, and in its place is this kind of really kind of rotten, kind of Bond villain-esque kind of scenario this this kind of this nazi state but as i keep saying you know the, the foundations are really really rotten uh, and you know it's rotten because of the effort they're 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 going to to perpetuate this whether it be kind of extracting gold teeth or whether it be stealing kind of vast amounts of artwork or whether it be taking the light fittings out of an apartment in paris i mean it, it is symptomatic of um of a state that has just completely lost its way economically, morally, you know, in any which way you look at it, it is it is utterly corrupt. And is this why it's important to tell these stories still? I mean, neo-Nazis in Charlottesville, uh, if we don't yeah. know where yes. history... We- well, yeah. Absolutely, because because what you always what always happens in the world every time there is a major economic upheaval, and fortunately the kind of you know the the, the crash of two thousand seven two thousand and eight has not been as bad as the Great Depression of you know prompted by the Wall Street crash of nineteen twenty nine. But whenever you have that, you have you have a, an upturn, and, and the world gets shaken up, and, and bad elements replace what has been stability beforehand. Uh, and it happens every single time. These are these are patterns of, of human behavior which just follow. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing now is a kind of sort of, you know, it's it's not as catastrophic as it was in 1929 and in the early 1930s. Um, but, but it is disturbing all the same. And one of the reasons for learning about the past is so that you can make sense of the present and prepare for the future uh, and hopefully not make the same mistakes. And what is so troubling is, is you know, there are a proportion of the, of the people on the earth who, who are interested in the past and who studied history and all the rest 
most of it and learn it, but not enough people do. And, you know, this, this although, you know, we hope this series is, is entertaining and fascinating and adventure and a great journey as well, it is also a warning from history too. And there's, there's a hopeful part of this too. I mean, you know, it's not... One of the things that I found most satisfying about being involved in this project is that it, in a way, represents the best of America, this example. Because, you know, when you think about it, and Britain and Canada are involved as well, but the Americans really do take the lead. That, you know, the Americans decide that when they, when, when they're going to, when they invade at, at, at D-Day and, and reconquer Europe, they're going to protect art and culture. And everywhere they go, they, they, they work hard to recover looted art and to return it to their countries of origin. And in a way, to me, that represents the America we all wish um, was out there, one that, you know, stood for something that's, you know, there are wars all over the world and, and protecting art and culture, I think, says something. I think it says, it provides an example because these great works of art, these wonderful places around the world, they belong to all of us. They belong to humanity and fighting to protect them sends a very strong message, but we seem to be sinking into a, a different kind of world of um, nationalist interests rather than international sensibilities. Well, yeah, and there's also important echoes of what's been going on in sort of Palmyra, for example. You know, you see the IS kind of de destroying stuff and, you know, the Nazis were doing the same and, you know, tearing buildings down and, and, and so on. And, you know, these echoes, again, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder. I mean, you know, what, what has been incredible about all this is just... As, you, as Steve was saying about kind of rise of nationalism again, um, of kind of you know defacing great works of art. You know this is this stuff is is this is the lifeblood of, of of who we are and and what we are and what we represent and it needs to be preserved and protected. And you know if if something like um, you know as I was saying you know for all the fact that the, the hunting Nazi treasure is is still supposed to be entertaining and, and fascinating and fun and all the rest of it, there is a there is an important message there too. That was producer Steve Gamester and Second World War historian James Holland from the television show Hunting Nazi Treasure. You can see it on the History Channel every Tuesday at 10 o'clock in Canada. Check your local listings uh, wherever else you might be listening to this. It's fascinating stuff. That's it, though. Our time is at an end for this week. Pack up your stuff, finish your drinks, leave the glasses on the bar, I'll clean them up a little bit later. Right now, you gotta take off so we can start preparing next week's show. My thanks to James Holland, to Steve Gamester, most of all though, and I say this every single week, my thanks to you. Without you, there'd be no point in doing this show, so come on back every single week. We put a new show up every single Monday. You never know who's going to be here, and who knows? Stop by, because one of your favorites may be here waiting to talk to you.